Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm Joseph Stewart. In Like a Fiery Meteor, The Life of Joseph F. Smith, Stephen C. Taysom examines the life of Joseph F. Smith, the fifth president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Smith was born in 1838 to Hiram Smith and Mary Fielding Smith. Six years later, both his father and his uncle, Joseph Smith Jr., the founding prophet of the LDS Church, were murdered in Carthage, Illinois. The trauma of that event remained with young Joseph F., for the rest of his life, affecting his personal behavior and public tenure in the highest tiers of the LDS Church, including the post of president from 1901 until his death in 1918. Joseph F. Smith laid the theological groundwork for modern Mormonism, especially the emphasis on temple work. This contribution was capped off by his revelation on the redemption of the dead, a prophetic glimpse into the afterlife. Kasem's book traces the roots of this vision, which reach far more deeply into Joseph F. Smith's life than other scholars have previously identified. In this first cradle-to-grave biography of Joseph F. Smith, Kasem uses previously unavailable primary sources to craft a deeply detailed, insightful story of a prominent member of a governing and influential Latter-day Saint family. Importantly, Kasem situates Smith within the historical currents of American westward expansion, rapid industrialization, settler colonialism, regional and national politics, changing ideas about family and masculinity, and many more topics. Steve Kasem, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course, it's a joy to have you here to discuss your new book, Like a Fiery Meteor, The Life of Joseph F. Smith. And so, Steve, your first book looked at how Shakers and Mormons negotiated religious change. How did that influence your approach to this book? Well, I think so. that theme of religious change is, has interested me. Since graduate school, produced the first book, and then in my teaching in the history of religion over the last 13 years or so, you have these new religions and whatever you want to call them, outsider religions or whatever. And they have tension with the world, but they have different kinds. And depending on what kind of tension they have or how they maintain that tension, it can either be beneficial for them or it can have deleterious effects. And that's kind of the big bird's eye theory of it. The Joseph F. Smith experience, if you want to call it that, is one of looking at how that change plays out or looks from an individual's perspective. Because he really did have to manage the kind of change that was sort of the Mormon brand of change, as I talked about it in the first book, which is you maintain a certain level of tension, but not so much that it breaks. Okay, not so much that you're far out of the orbit of national culture. Some religions like to do that. They like to be way out there from the centers of power and have a high tension like that. And Mormonism kind of doesn't do that. It sort of stays about the same distance apart from the broader culture. And then it's faced with these kind of crisis moments, like the Manifesto of 1890, you know, the issue of polygamy. And then with Joseph F. Smith's the Reed Smoot hearings and the the continual process to try to end it within the church rather than just placating the outside forces. So that's really how it kind of spilled over. It's just this, with a biography, you see how it looks from the perspective of an individual who's going through this and who has the power to participate in making those changes. Thanks for sharing that. Another big picture question that I'm curious to hear from you on is, what are some of the challenges of moving to biography as a genre? 
as you did moving from a history of religions comparative study between Mormons and Shakers for your first book. Yeah, so the first book and then every article I've ever written in between is based on kind of the classic historian model of I identify a problem or a research question, and then I kind of marshal sources and look through them to try to answer the question. With a biography, I didn't know this, partially because I don't care for biography particularly as a genre to read. Just it doesn't, I know that sounds very weird to say. It's not that interesting to me to read about, you know, the early life of somebody or the later life of somebody. I'm interested in the important, quote unquote, important things they did. But biography is a totally different animal to history. I mean, it's related, but I would say it's, it's kind of a cousin relationship. So instead of having a question that I could then think about and approach sources with, I have a kind of person-shaped mold that I've got to fill in using sources. And that presents a lot of different challenges. I think one of them for me was that when you've been dictated, okay, this person was born in 1838 and they die in 1918, and now you've got to write about what happens to them in between, not every part of that is linear. Not all of it is equally documented. It's not all linear. So there might be at, at any given moment in this person's life, there might be 10 different things happening that you want to talk about. And so you have to ask yourself, I can't do it linearly because it's happening synchronously. It's all happening at the same time. So then do I write it thematically? And then what do I do? And then the other problem is documentation. So there are parts of it, a lot of times those parts where a lot of things are happening that are almost over-documented. You can't use all the documents because there's so many. But then there are years, sometimes decades of someone's life where there are almost no documents. And so you're left to creatively kind of theorize about what their life might have been like during that time. And so biography is a very different, it's a very different enterprise to what I had been used to, which is one of the reasons why it took me so long to complete the book was because I had to essentially educate myself on the theory of, of biography, theoretical work, how do you do it? And so I had to educate myself in that literature before I could really start writing it or researching. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Just in any study, you're trying to balance all of the things that you're learning that aren't necessarily happening chronologically, but you're really trying to think about the formation of a person, of an individual rather than of an institution. And in thinking about that, Joseph F. Smith saw a lot of changes to the institution. He was a complicated individual, as most of us are in history, but especially those who accumulate power and powerful organizations. So what do you think is most important for listeners to know about Joseph F. Smith for them to be able to understand Mormon history? Oh, that's a good question. I think the answer depends really on what somebody wants to understand. I'm not a big believer in the idea that there's one thing to understand, right? That there's one essential characteristic of, of anything. But Joseph F. Smith, I suppose, grows up with the church, meaning he's born when there really isn't an institution. I mean, yes, they do have institutional kind of aspiration when he's born in 1838, and they have, you know, what they call offices in their priesthood, and they have kind of structure, but it's not an institution, any kind of sociologically significant sense. By the time he dies in 1918, it is. And his story, really, because he gets pulled into the leadership position and because he's got this familial connection to the original founders of Mormonism, over the course of his life, he makes and observes the creation 
a reification of an institution, right? So the old Max Weber idea of the routinization of charisma is something that he essentially participates in for many decades because he seems to instinctively sense. I don't know that he could lay it out, right? Like Max Weber does. I don't think we probably never heard of Max Weber. But he instinctively seems to know that if Mormonism is to continue, you have to come up with standards and practices, you know, things that have to be done a certain way. And he pushes that at a time in the mid to late 19th century when not all church leaders thought. And so he was setting up the institutionalization of Mormonism most of his life. And so that's, I guess, I guess the answer to your question. What does it tell you about Mormonism? Is it, this is how Mormonism was institutionalized. Well, thanks so much for thinking through that with me, Steve. Something I really liked in your book is that you don't only spend time on Joseph F. Smith's Smith family, these New England, New York Yankees. You spend a lot of time thinking about his British family, the Fieldings. So how and why did you choose to focus on the Fieldings as a significant aspect of Joseph F.'s life? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the, the Smith story is one that's been told and told and told and told and told. And so we know that story. But the other one is Joseph F. Smith was not really part of the Smith family as we think of it, right? So we've got Joseph Smith Jr. and, and Joseph Smith Sr. and his mother and then Hiram. Well, you know, those two brothers are dead when Hiram Smith is very small. Uh, of course, the grandfather is dead. The grandmother stays behind. She doesn't become part of the Utah church in any kind of significant way for him to know her that well. Then we've got Emma Smith, who, of course, stays behind. This is Smith Jr.'s widow. Stays uh, in the Midwest with her son, so those cousins. So he's isolated from that family pretty early on in his life. So even though he has that name, and he's extremely close to his mother. So his mother is an English immigrant. She migrates to Canada, joins the, the church uh, there. She marries Hiram Smith in the late 1830s, his second wife, his first wife uh, died. And uh, she has two kids by Hiram, uh, Joseph and his sister, Martha. And she becomes the stepmother to the older children. Now, so that, that's kind of the background. But what really got me interested in it was when I started reading about Joseph F. Smith's mission trip to England in the 1860s, he actually meets his fielding uncles. And what I learned very quickly when I saw the dynamic playing out amongst these uncles, both in terms of his meetings with them, letters that they sent back and forth, the way that his mother behaved toward people, was that his personality was very much like theirs. They were combative people. They were quick-tempered people. They held grudges. They sought grudges. They were religious, use a term that's not technical, they were religious fanatics. When they came to believe a religious thing to be true, they would do anything, including cutting off members of their own families to adhere to those principles that they believed in, because they were religious in England. They weren't, you know, some of them weren't LDS, and some were. And so I recognized, because I knew something about him already, I recognized, okay, that's where he's getting this from. The Smith family, yes, you hear stories about Joseph, Smith would occasionally get angry and, you know, kick somebody out of his house or whatever. But generally, they were a family that got along, setting William aside. They got along. They forgave each other. They, you know, worked together and they did all this stuff. The Fieldings weren't like that. I mean, they couldn't have built a cabin together if their lives depended on it. And they were that cantankerous and contentious with one another. And I think, so going back to writing about him in that period is he's very close to his mother. 
And she is a person who is herself very quick to anger. She lashes out in writing at Iron Smith. Oh, that's in the book. She felt slighted by church leadership after the deaths of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith because she felt that they were favoring Joseph Smith's widow, Emma, over her and that they were kind of leaving her to fend for herself. And she carried those grudges with her to Salt Lake. In fact, she refused when they got out there. She refused to live. They kind of set up a, called it the old fort, the central is now Salt Lake City, adobe walls and that around it. And they had you know, plots and she wouldn't really live there. She moved down further south out on a farm by herself because she just didn't get along with those people. And she believed that she was being very poorly treated. And I would say her personality is the greatest influence on Joseph F. Smith. So one of the most interesting parts of the book, though, is in 1838, Joseph F. Smith is born in 1844. His father, Hiram Smith, is assassinated with his brother, Joseph Smith. And Joseph F. and his family move to the Great Basin and settle in what is today Salt Lake City. But pretty soon after arriving in Salt Lake City, Joseph F.'s mother dies. And just a few years later, he's sent on a mission. Now, I've just put into a few sentences, there's a lot going on in that time period. What are some of the things that stuck out to you as you studied that formative period between his father's death, his first call to serve a mission for the LDS church, this time in Hawaii? When I talked earlier about the difficulties, the paucity of sources, this is one of those periods. So late 1840s, early 1850s, certainly he's not writing any, really. What you have to rely on here is, is mostly memory. And I actually published an article in Dialogue 2015 about this. Joseph Smith and memory. I talk about it in the book too. And memory is notoriously difficult and untrustworthy and so forth. So what you have to rely on here for this period are his reminiscences from much later on in his life. And so he's seeing those years really through the lens of a much older man. But what he sees is constant kind of conflict, a constant struggle with not only with the land, but primarily with other people. This is where the Cornelius Lot story happens, where, you know, his mother, according to him, was harassed by this guy constantly on their, on their voyage west, not sexually harassed, but just bothered, you know, constantly kind of berated by him and so forth. And, and Joseph F. Smith developed this tremendous hatred for him. And when he died, he kind of rejoiced about it. So there was that. There were these vague kind of allusions. And this is where the title of the book comes from, a letter that he wrote in the spring of 1888, his friend, whose name is Samuel Adams. And he wrote that the time between the death of his mother in 1852 and the time that he went on his mission in 1854, he behaved the way he said it was almost like a fiery meteor. And again, he doesn't specifically say what he means by that. He just says, I was out of And I guess we're left to kind of ponder what would that look like for someone or in the early teens, an orphan with that kind of disposition on the Western frontier. I don't know. But he certainly was, by his own admission, not the picture of piety by anybody's definition. Probably not the picture of pro-social behavior by most people's definition. So whatever, certainly his view of himself during that period, probably accurate, whether the details are exact or not, is an open question. But he saw himself and probably was a very delinquent individual 
rebel without a without a cause is wrong because he actually has a cause but he is ticked at the world he is nameless and eventually church leaders give him an aim they focus his laser-like mind and influence and will on on building the church and that seems to spill over actually i think into my next question which is about his relationship with other members of the smith family and thinking about his relationship with his cousins joseph smith the third and david hiram smith who are leaders in the reorganized church of jesus christ of latter-day saints the rlds church or what is today known as the community of christ but also his cousin ina coolbreth who was his cousin by his father's brother don carlos and so could you tell us a little bit about how he saw the rest of the Smith family, meaning those who did not congregate with the LDS church in Utah, or at least identify with the church as their religious home? Sure. First, I want to go back. You made an excellent point when you talked about, I didn't make the point that I should have made, which is that in this delinquency, he never lost this dedication to the religious principles, which to him were also dedication to his murdered father, right? So he never lost that. That was there forever. And as he gets older, comes to know these other members of his family. You're talking about his cousin on Joseph Smith's sons and Ina Coolbreth, two very different situations. So we can look at the, the sons of Joseph first, because I think those had a more important impact on him in terms of his public life, whereas Coolbreth's situation was had a much more longer lasting impact on his personal life. It happened earlier. He always viewed his cousins, the Joseph's junior sons, as, I mean, to say that he had a, a negative opinion of them would to criminally undersell. He believed they were intentional enemies of God's true revealed church. And much like Brigham Young thought, he believed that they had been brought to this by their mother, Emma Smith. And, and this, people who know about Mormon history and various LBS branches of the LDS family tree, they'll know this, but Emma Smith rejects, she has a, a love-hate, mostly hate relationship with polygamy during Joseph Smith's lifetime. But after he dies, she begins to deny that he ever did it. And so his children grow up and they form their own church in the 1860s. They don't form it, but they become you know prominent leaders in it, then known as the Reorganized Church. Of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now known as the Community of Christ, still exists. And their argument was that the temple and its endowment rituals and sealing rituals and polygamy were inventions of Brigham Young. That Joseph Smith never taught it. He didn't have anything to do with it. And I mentioned, and of course, he hated that. Okay. Now, I mentioned that this had an important impact on him professionally or public. One of my arguments in the book is that he goes on his first mission to Hawaii in the 1850s. He comes back from that. And he's put to work by Brigham Young in the historian's office. He works in a place called the Endowment House, which is like a temporary temple. Uh, he was paid for this work that he did. Not a lot, but he was paid for it. And he went on some other missions and things in the 1860s. In 1866, apparently out of nowhere, he's working in the historian's office. And upstairs, Brigham Young was holding a prayer circle, which is a kind of a religious ritual. and with members of the Cormac 12 and First Presidency. And at the time, the First Presidency was not fixed as a, a three-person unit. So there were multiple members of the First Presidency. And you could also be a, an apostle and not in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And you could be an apostle and in the First Presidency and not in, in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So all this stuff was still getting figured out. 
And after Brigham Young finished his prayer, he stood up and, and said, Joseph F. Smith, I'm going to call him to be one of my counselors. So this is 1866, all right? He's still in his 20s in 1866. And they go downstairs and they eat down there and they write out the account, right? This is what happened. I was called to this position, signs his name to it. Well, I argue in the book that the main reason for this was that Joseph Smith's sons were coming very shortly to Utah on a proselytizing mission. And Brigham Young knew that the people in the church had either known Joseph Smith or had known of Joseph as this almost colossus of a person, right? This, this almost superhuman prophet. And so, of course, his sons were going to have tremendous sway. And Brigham Young didn't have a Smith. He had John Smith, who's Joseph Smith's older half-brother. He was the patriarch of the church. But Brigham Young didn't like him very much. He wasn't anywhere near as intelligent as Joseph S. Smith was. And so suddenly, before these Smith brothers come to proselytize in Utah, Brigham Young finds Smith. Now, it's Hiram Smith's son, but it's, it's as close as he's got. Okay, And so he brings him into the first presidency. And then in about three years later, they're coming back again. And Joseph F. Smith is given the task of going around to people who knew Joseph Smith and who some of whom had been married to Joseph Smith, who knew he had been involved in polygamy and collecting affidavits from these people. So it's no accident that he's sending Joseph F. Smith to do this. And he, Joseph F. Smith then publicly debates with some of Joseph Smith's sons about whether or not Joseph practiced polygamy. And he's got all these documents and, and, and keeps them there. So his relationship with Joseph Smith III, Alexander, and the others was always, it was negative. It was tense and it was adversarial. Now, there were moments, so he finds out, for example, this is late, I, I can't remember the exact date, but it's late in the 19th century. He finds out that Joseph Smith III's wife has died and Joseph Smith writes a letter to him. One of the few letters that, that I have found that isn't combative, which he basically says, I, you know, I'm sorry that you, you know, for your loss, essentially. It's a condolence letter. And then on the other side, they are all living in the Midwest. Then in Coolbrith lives in California. And in fact, she becomes the first poet laureate of the state of California. She's very artistic, very what we would think of as, as worldly or cosmopolitan. And as you said, she's his cousin. Her father is Don Carlos Smith. Now, the relationship that those two had was very complicated. And if you study their letters, their letters go back and forth. He he actually stays with her. She lives in the San Francisco area. He stays with her, her mother, and her stepfather, working to gain money to make the trip across to Hawaii. And their relationship goes from there until 20th century. And Joseph F. Smith, she's beautiful, for one thing. And Joseph F. Smith isn't bothered by the fact that she's his first cousin. In fact, Joseph F. Smith's first wife is also his first cousin. So. He does seem to be enamored by this woman in romantic terms. And I know people, you know, there are some people that are going to really wring their hands over this. But he pays very particular attention to her. And his letters, while not overly romantic, are certainly of a softer tone than he normally takes. And she is at least as vociferously opposed to polygamy as the other cousins are, Joseph Smith's junior sons. But he doesn't respond to her in exactly the same way most of the time. 
most of the time he kind of tries to convince her or kind of offer her kind of a nuanced view, you know, gently sort of say, you know, you have the wrong idea about what life in Utah is like. She was sort of like an early feminist. She would tell him, you know, I don't want to go to Utah because Utah's full of old men with harems of young women. And he would say, well, it's not quite like that, which I mean, okay, but whether or not it was, or was he said it was. And she, she never believed him. And she would kind of tease with him and that. And he would let her do that most of the time. There were a couple of times where she kind of touched a nerve and he would kind of go off, especially later on in life. But, but most of the time, he seemed to have a soft spot in his heart for her. But he would basically say when he was talking about her, she's wonderful raw material that has been processed in the worst possible way. Yeah, so for those interested in Ina Coolbrith as well, just want to mention that our friend Amanda Hendricks Komodo has a biography of Ina Coolbrith coming out with the University of Illinois Press in the next few years, so folks should keep an eye on that. Now, with Joseph F. Smith, he's very involved in local politics because he's an LDS church leader, but he's also involved in national politics, again, because he's an LDS church leader. Do you think that he approached local versus national politics in different ways? And if so, why? Well, yeah, he did. I mean, and part of it is because the local and national politics are very different, especially Utah territorial politics versus American federal. So he was a member of the territorial legislature. He was involved for a time in Provo. I can't remember if it was city or county government in Utah County. And the difference, and he did a lot, he kind of blurred these political lines. They were still trying to figure out, you know, how much religion should be in our politics and how much politics should be in our religion. And Joseph F. Smith had a hard time kind of teasing those apart. And so he spent some time giving, you know, he's supposed to be doing ecclesiastic tours and he, he would spend some of the time talking about or encouraging other people to talk about politics, particularly selling the Republican Party. He was a staunch, once the, the People's Party was disbanded, the Mormon kind of political entity was disbanded and gotten rid of as part of their bid for statehood. They sort of made Mormons choose, you know, either be a Democrat or a Republican. And he couldn't understand how a Mormon could be anything but a Republican, which, strangely enough, was, was the minority view at the time. And he had various reasons for that. But his dealings with national politics were somewhat different. Okay, so on the local level, he knew everybody, and everybody knew him. And he was aware of the fact that he was a person of influence and of fame. I mean, he was kind of a celebrity in Utah. People knew him, right? And when he went to Washington, that was upended. Nobody knew him. Nobody cared. And so he sort of looked, he was looking through the other end of the telescope at that. They were bigger than him as far as you know, national uh, reputational status was concerned. So his national political attitude was somewhat different. He, he respected American institutions. When he went to Washington, D.C. in the late 1880s, ostensibly to help with immigration matters, he was also lobbying for people to give money to help push for Utah statehood. And he would go, he visited the White House, president, which, I mean, in, in those days, you could actually do that. It wasn't like you needed it. It had to be important. It had to have a, you just kind of went there and met him. He did that. That changed to a degree when the Reed Smoot hearings happened. And we could talk about that maybe later. But generally, he was very respectful of American institutions at that point. Once they decided they needed to get statehood, and once they were admitted as a state, 
he really worked hard to establish in the minds of American political leaders that Mormons had always been loyal to the United States government, that his ancestors, this is where he connects himself with the Smiths. So Joseph F. Smith, noted polygamist, had five wives when he died and fathered 45 children. What was Joseph F. Smith like as a father and as a husband? While also acknowledging, and folks can, can read more about this in the book, that his first marriage ended in divorce, at least in part due to his physically abusing his wife. Following that first divorce, what was he like as a father and as a husband? Okay, so that's actually more, more complex than you might imagine that question to be. So just to touch on his first wife, Olivera Smith, who, as I mentioned before, was his, also his first cousin. And you can read in the book, there's an entire chapter on the very dark history of that marriage. Uh, it was a very toxic situation that he was in, but that he, he created and participated in creating, and it's just a depressing episode in life. But it's one that we can't forget. Now, once he marries again and begins to become a polygamist, he was not a reluctant polygamist, but he wasn't an enthusiastic. I mean, he, he was enthusiastic about the idea, but he always had to be prompted. It's time to do it. It's time for you to have another one. And so instead of kind of conducting, you know, a, a large search, he would just sort of look around and, and say, get her. And because by that point, the people he was around were powerful. He ended up being married to relatives of John Taylor and, and uh, George Richards and those types of people, right? Heber Kimball. And so he wasn't actively seeking that out, but that's kind of how it ended up. Let me start with the, the children first, that part of the question. What we know about him and his children, he very rarely mentions them when they're small unless they die, which happened a lot. So he did, he did uh, lose 13 children during the course of his life. Some of them were adults. So his, his, the last one that, that he lost was his son, Hiram Smith, who died in 1918, same year that Joseph F. Smith died. He definitely had a very sensitive, worrying kind of disposition towards the children when they were small. But one of the effects of polygamy, I think generally, is especially, so most polygamists in Utah in the 19th century, polygamous men, had two wives. You know, very few had more than that because partially just because the economics of it just didn't work. And like you mentioned, he had more than that, when he doubled that. And so one of the effects that that has is that it dilutes his contact with the children that he has. Because they don't all, it's not like they all live in the same house and he sees them every day and he comes home and they all jump on him, right? They're not living, some of them live together some of the time and they kind of move in and out and that. But he's gone a lot. He knows them. He knew his kids. But we don't know much about how he interacted with them other than he clearly had a tender spot for kids in general and for his kids in particular. Joseph Fielding Smith, his son, right, who confusingly enough has his exact same name and for many years was known as Joseph F. Smith Jr., but is known to most members of the church, LDS Church, as Joseph Fielding Smith. He becomes president of the church, but the only father and son to be president of the church, president of the church, I think, in 19, 1970. So we're here discussing with Steve Taysom, like a fiery meteor, the life of Joseph F. Smith from the University of Utah Press. And Joseph F. Smith elevated many of his sons and other family members to prominent positions within the LDS Church. But I think that his legacy goes a lot further than his children and cousins and half-brothers and, and grandchildren. Are there some aspects of modern LDS Mormonism that you think can be traced back to Joseph F. Smith's development or popularizing during his lifetime? Yeah, I think. There are a couple that go far beyond what you mentioned. So the thing that comes into people's minds 
immediately is the fact that he sort of you know, packed the court, if you will, right? So as soon as he becomes president of the church, he calls one of his sons to be an apostle. Then he calls another one of his sons to be an apostle. Then he significantly elevates the role of his brother, his half-brother, as church patriarch. In fact, he wants he sort of floats the idea that the church patriarch should be sustained before the Quorum of the Twelve in general conference, right after the first presidency. And yes, that had an effect. One of the effects was that, that Joseph Fielding Smith becomes president of the church much later. But that kind of pales in comparison to a couple of other institutional things that he did. One of them was, again, his this search for order. And Jonathan Staples done a lot of work on this and, and a lot of work on Joseph F. Smith's need to kind of put things in order and, and, and what have you. And so if you're, if you're LDS and if you have, maybe you've done this or you've seen it done or you've had it done to you, when you are usually 12 years old, you are, quote unquote, given the Aaronic priesthood. So in Mormonism, there's a couple of you know, tiers to the priesthood and one of the, the lower one is the Aaronic priesthood. And within each priesthood, there are offices. And for most of the 19th century, people just kind of, well, they made you a deacon and they gave you the priesthood. And Joseph F. Smith was very insistent. No, no, it goes like this. You confer the Aaronic priesthood, you ordain them to the office of the deacon. So you confer the priesthood, you ordain. Okay, you might look at that and say, well, big deal. It's a big deal because he did this with a hundred other things, number one. Number two, he did it with complete assurance that this was the divine way. Before that, people did things and they sort of did them. It's all acceptable to God if I, however I do this ordinance. Joseph S. Smith was very, his notion of what he wanted and his notion of what God wanted were always very close together. So if he, if he thought this is how you should do it, his immediate next thought was, this is how God wants you. Okay. So he not only standardized or routinized the practices, but he also insisted that this is how the divine order works. And a lot of people hadn't done that before. He was one of the one of the few. So one of the things he does is he imposes this kind of obsession with the correct order of everything from the temple rituals to the minutia of which hand you take the sacrament with. Now, I'm not saying that he came up with this idea that you always take the sacrament with your right hand. He might have, but that's Jonathan Staples. But what he did do was he came up with the idea that if it's a practice that is largely prominent and that is approved by church leaders, it's the divine practice. It isn't just the cultural way we do it. It's the right way to do it. Now, that has advantages in that it routinizes things, makes things uniform, but it also makes things harder to change. It makes change harder to rationalize. So that's one of the things. The other thing that he did, and I'll point this doctrinal idea out in particular, if you, and this gets into specific Mormon vocabulary. So I'm going to ask you a question, right? So if I say that somebody was excommunicated from the church for immorality, what do you think I mean by immorality? So in a modern sense, I would think about it as having a sexual relationship outside of the bonds of a heterosexual marriage. Right. So as a Mormon, your immediate thought with immorality is sex. Okay, well, broadly speaking, there are a lot of ways to be immoral, right? You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can kill, you can whatever, right? That's all immoral. But Joseph F. Smith became one of the earliest church leaders to fixate on sexuality and sexual sin 
as the defining feature of immorality, such that after Joseph F. Smith, when you said immorality, people knew you meant sexual sin. And the reason that I bring that up, because you might, some listeners might think, so what? If you look at the church after Joseph F. Smith, the almost kind of quasi-obsessional fixation on sexual purity as defined by the church, it's defining moral feature, right? I mean, the only thing more serious than adultery is probably stealing money from the church. I mean, I think it's in the church handbook where it says stealing money is, is serious. Stealing our money is very serious. Now, I don't mean to suggest that no other church leaders had ever been concerned about this, but with him, it became a kind of central concern and a central definition of morality. And there were reasons for why he came to those conclusions. Yeah, I mean, part of what I think about is that this is part of his genius for organization that he has, too, is that he's creating boundaries that people can stay within or stay without. There's a bright red line on every boundary that he's creating. And I think that it's also interesting, too, if you wouldn't mind me asking a, a question I didn't say that I would ask you beforehand. When he testifies at the Reed Smoot trials, he says that as a president of the church, he had not received revelations from God, that he had learned to trust himself, in short. Could you tell us more about that and what you think that says about sort of the epistemology of Mormon revelation and what that sort of ties in there? So when he goes there, first of all, he's a very difficult witness, right? So he's not testifying in front of the entire Congress, right? So we shouldn't picture him, you know, and there's, you know, 600 people in front of him. He's in a hearing with, you know, know, 25 people or something. Again, read Kathleen Blake's book. If you want all the details about that, but he's he's being very difficult with that, and they're asking him questions. Obviously, they're trying to kind of lay traps for him because they're they're talking about whether or not Reed Smoot, this this Mormon apostle who's been elected to the Senate, should take a should have a seat, should be granted his seat. And Smoot himself was not a witness. The argument was, and what the committee was trying to show was that the church controlled its members. So it's the exact same kind of problem John F. Kennedy faced when he ran for president. It's that Rome is going to control you no matter what, right? So you, you, you have this higher loyalty. And so they, they would ask him questions like, are you president of Deseret Book? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then they're like, well, Deseret Book. And he's like, oh, you mean Deseret Book Company? Is that what you're talking about? And that, and that would go on for like five minutes for every company. And he was on the boards of you know dozens of them. But when it came to the, to the question of, are you a prophet? Have you had a revelation? And he says, no. This is the one thing that, that haunts him. And I talk about this in the book. It haunts him because he, it's the first time he has to kind of grasp this, right? That I, I said to them, I never received this kind of thus saith the Lord, you know, revelation, right? Now, of course, he had had revelations, like what he thought were revelations of, you know, impressions and that kind of thing. But he didn't have this the kind of, you know, Anne Hutchinson revelation where they ask her, how do you know uh, the things you say? And she said the same way that Abraham knew that he should kill his son by a direct voice, right? So he doesn't have that direct voice experience. And this is extremely troubling to him. And in fact, people, in, members of the church are writing because the general impression was, and I would say remains, that the church leaders in the first presidency in the form of the 12 have all had some kind of dramatic revelatory experience, when in fact, many of them will tell you that their revelatory experiences are like your revelatory experiences, if you're you're LDS, okay? They come in a much more subtle form. But people are writing to him saying, 
how can you say this? And one letter in particular, I remember clearly, one said, you know, you're the president of the church. You're the prophet. And you're telling them that you've never had a revelation? And Joseph Smith writes back in a very snarky tone. And I think the tone was, was partially one of self-reprobation, right? Where he's like, I don't even think you're a real Mormon if you ask me that question. That's what Joseph Smith says. To and he says, but I'll humor you and I'll pretend that I think you are. He writes this letter back, but it bothers him. And it bothers him so much that he starts to say things like, you shouldn't call us prophets and apostles. You should call me president. Because when he was in Washington, D.C., and they kept calling him a prophet, he was a little bit embarrassed by it. It felt a little Old Testament. He wanted to be called president because in his mind, right, we're talking about the early 20th century, we're talking about Robert Barrett, we're talking about the, the rise of large corporations. Well, who is the president of a large corporation? The president, like I just said, right? So he's trying to tell members of the church, call me president. You should, you should call us president. And whether or not that has a, a trickle-down effect on the way Mormons think about Revelation, I don't know. That kind of thing is very difficult to prove. I know that for him, it was an incredibly sad and frustrating thing that he was dealing with, that he had told them the truth about the fact that he had never had that kind of dramatic revelation. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a decade or so later, we get the kind of capstone of his life, right? The vision of the redemption of the dead, which is very much presented by him as an act of seership, right? Of seeing things, of seeing beyond the, the mortal world into the, the world of eternity. Thanks so much for that. And thanks again for speaking to us about your book, Like a Fiery Meteor, The Life of Joseph F. Smith from the University of Utah Press. So, Steve, what are you working on next? Have you landed on, on another project? Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to focus on my teaching for a while. This book took 10 years to write. Of course, I was focusing on my teaching during all those years, because my employer is listening to this. But uh, I think I'm going to, to teach. And what I found is that my ideas for projects typically come when I'm not looking for them. So when I'm teaching, for example, and I'm trying to explain a concept, and I'll think of an example of the concept, that will then become an article, something like that. Now, if I had to guess, I would say that I would probably be writing something about ritual, or something about religious change. These are things that interest me. So my guess is there'll be something along those lines. I would really like to move out of the world of Mormonism for my next book. I wrote an article about Jonestown, teaching Jonestown, People's Temple and the kind of massacre of Jonestown. I wrote an article about that while I was writing this book. I kind of toyed with that, moving into that area. But I can't really tell you exactly what I'm going to be working on next yet, because I don't know. Well, that is more than fair. Well, again, the name of the book is Like a Fiery Meteor, The Life of Joseph F. Smith from the University of Utah Press. Steve Taysom, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us. No, thank you for having me on.